morning. My name is Joseph Ray. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you before, and really glad you're here with us together. Um, if you saw the text that we are uh, looking at today, you may have been surprised. And you said, why are we studying a Christmas text two weeks after Christmas? Which, can you believe Christmas is just two weeks away? It feels like it's been a month and a half. Maybe it hasn't for you, but it has for me. Um, and uh, so, the, well, I was supposed to preach this passage on December 26th, the day after Christmas. But Paul read the sermon and thought it was so good that he thought we should wait until there were more people around to hear it. Um, so... No, uh, truth is, I woke up with a stomach bug on December 26th, which I have four kids, so that happens a lot around Christmas. Uh, We wake up with stomach bugs, and so we decided to switch me to this Sunday. But if you grew up in a more liturgical church, then probably a Sunday or two after Christmas, you would have read this passage. This is about the visit of the Magi to Bethlehem after Jesus' birth. That's because a lot of more liturgical churches celebrate uh, an event called Epiphany. So epiphany, the word just means appearing. And so, you know, we still call kind of an idea that strikes us out of nowhere an epiphany. Um, But what it means is that uh, it celebrates times where God's glory appeared in a special way to people. And at least some of the people who saw the epiphany got it, understood it for what it was. So technically Epiphany Sunday was last week, but we're non-denominational, so we can do what we want. So we're doing epiphany today. Um, So let's look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, uh, which is on page 807 of the Blue Bibles. Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. All right. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray. Dear God, here in this story, we see an epiphany. We see a time where you revealed your glory to part of the world. And sadly, not everyone sees it for what it is. And so I pray today that as we look at this story, we would see and understand what you're communicating uh, through the signs that you gave to point people to the glory of your son. And I pray that we could have 
the right response. You would open our hearts so that we receive it for the good and glorious news that it really is. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So when we were having our fourth baby, uh, we decided to do a little gender reveal surprise thing for us and for our kids. So we didn't know what we were having, um, you know, and so we wanted to find out kind of all together as a family. And so I wanted to do like have a building demoed and have like blue or pink smoke, you know, come out of the explosive. But um, I got voted down. So we went with cupcakes instead. Um, We had cupcakes filled with either blue or pink uh, M&Ms, I think. And there's this video um, that we have. I hope we still have it of our three kids responding to, you know, the appearing of what they're going to have, to finding out they were pink, that they're going to be, they're going to have a baby sister. And it's funny because there's three completely different reactions. So one child sees the pink M&Ms, understands it, and cheers, and it's super sweet, you know, the reaction that you want. Um, one kid is just happy there's M&Ms and cupcakes, and so uh, doesn't really respond to the news, but it's, you know, like begins digging in. Uh, and then uh, a a third one, I won't tell you which, kind of processes the pink M&Ms for a second and then yells out, no, I wanted a boy. Um, I'll let you guess which of my two daughters and one son had that reaction. But, um, uh, but the thing is, so these three kids get the same gift, the same news that they're having a baby sister and have three completely different reactions to the gift. And so that's what we're going to look at today, because that's what happens in this story, that we see God present a gift to the world and show, you know, a pretty large group of people what he has given to the world through his son. But sadly, we see three totally different reactions to that gift. And that means everything, because how we respond to what we've seen of God's gift determines the entire course of our lives. And so we're going to look today at God's gift, at how he points to it, how he cuts the cupcake, so to speak. And we're going to look at the three reactions that people have to it. So first, how does God reveal his gift? What does he do to cut the cupcake? Let's read the first six verses again. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ is to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." So this story is actually presented almost like a mystery. Um, I kept thinking of the Indiana Jones movie where they're looking for the Ark of the Covenant. And like one group of people has this medallion that, you know, points the way to where the covenant is buried. But the other group of people has this staff the medallion has to sit on. And so they can't solve the mystery until they bring the pieces together and then they can find it. Um, That movie is completely historically and biblically accurate, by the way, if you've seen it. It is an utterly reliable guide to what the Ark of the Covenant is and does. Um, But uh, so the epiphany begins with the mysterious arrival of these magi from way over in Persia. So this isn't even in the Roman Empire, which is already kind of a hostile place to Judeans. This is the next empire over. So these guys come in sometime after Jesus is born. Um, This could have been probably between six months and two years. We don't know exactly. Um, But this procession of magi appears in Jerusalem. 
And I'll have to quibble with the song, We Three Kings, just a little bit uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, they bring three gifts, but we don't know how many there were. There could have been three. There could have been more. Um, so it's not three. And uh, they weren't kings. So that's a tradition that kind of grew up in the centuries after the Bible was written, but um, they're not kings. So what magi were, were they were sort of these men of learning who would sort of hang around the courts, usually in eastern empires, but not just. They're magi in Rome as well. They worship pagan gods, so they study kind of like historical texts as scholars, but they also worship false gods, and they practice magic. And then they also study kind of, they combine what we would call astronomy and what we would call astrology of sort of studying the heavens, but also trying to use them to divine what might be going on in the world. And so, you know, our translation here of wise men puts them in a more favorable light than the Jews at this time would have seen them in. So that's why I'm going to call them magi through the rest of the story, because we actually get our word magic from this same word. And that was something that Jews were forbidden to practice and Christians. And so when Jews heard this word, they heard the word magi, where they would have gone is not kind of these venerable men of learning. They would have gone back somewhere like the book of Daniel. So Daniel was a prophet who served in Babylon in exile. So he served under King Nebuchadnezzar when Israel had been scattered into other places and they lived this sort of tenuous and fragile life. And Nebuchadnezzar has this dream that terrifies him. And he summons all of his magi, his enchanters and his sorcerers and all his men of learning. And he demands that they tell him not just what the dream means, but that they use their magic, their powers to tell him the dream. And they freak out because they say, no, no one can do that. We can't do that. No one has that power. And he actually threatens. He says he's going to kill them all. He's just going to like wipe the slate clean. Uh, but Daniel hears about it. And he says, let me pray to you know, the true God who knows and reveals dreams, and let me see if he will give an answer. And then he does, and God, the God of the Hebrews, the true God, reveals to him the dream and its meaning. And so Daniel actually saves the necks of the Babylonian magi and becomes the head of all of Nebuchadnezzar's like, men of learning. And so that was you know, hundreds of years before this happened. And so these magi, in Jewish eyes, they are pagans, they're idolaters, they practice forbidden things, and their stuff doesn't work, you know, kind of in their mind. And so they are, uh, they're more outsiders than like, ooh, look at these guys, they're not celebrities. Um, and so, uh, but wildly enough, these men who live in spiritual darkness, sort of by the standards of Judaism, which are their true standards, um, they receive a light. They see a new sign appear in the heavens, and somehow they have enough knowledge. You know, probably it would have come from Daniel's tradition, since he had such a great kind of reputation among the Magi uh, historically before. But they, they know enough to understand that it means a king of the Jews has been born. And so they come to Jerusalem, which is the capital of, you know, the Jews region in Judea, which is the logical place you'd go if a king has been born. And they come with this mystery asking, like, Where's the new king? You know, we're here to worship him. But you find out that they come with half the mystery, and the Jews who are there in power have not received the other half of the mystery, or not received that half, because they have no idea what's going on. But you see the reaction in verse 3, Herod and all of Jerusalem are thrown into consternation. They're thrown into confusion. They're troubled. They're agitated because they don't know what's going on. And as we're going to see, Herod is particularly troubled by this. He has a particularly um, fierce problem with this. Um, 
And so they don't get the mystery. Now, we don't know if this is a physical light like a comet or like a supernatural light uh, given as a sign. Um, the fact that it moves later in the story inclines me to think it's supernatural. But if you want to come to me with like astronomical charts and tell me which comet it was, I'm not going to fight you about that. Um, that's fine. Um, but the, the point is that God put a light in the darkness to bring these foreign pagan idolaters to not just worship the king, but to reveal the news of the king's birth. And so they come to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem goes into consternation, and Herod summons all of his wise men, you know, his own magi, so to speak, or their equivalent, and he says, what's going on? Tell me, what are these guys talking about? Where is this king supposed to be born? And they can provide this half of the mystery. They provide the other piece of it because they have uh, God's word. We have a prophecy that God gave 700 years before through the prophet Micah. And that's what they quote in verse 6. It says, And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is fascinating. Because God ordained this story to include both Jews, his people, his religious insiders, and also pagans who, you know, like learned the truth while they were on the wrong path. Somehow they were still looking for enough of a light that God showed them something and brought them here. That it took both Jews and Gentiles to, uh, you know, fulfill the mystery and find the epiphany of Jesus's birth. And just from like where we are in history and in our part of the world, I doubt there are very many people here from a Jewish background. I'm certainly not. And so as we see through the rest of Christian history, uh, the gospel of Jesus explodes out through the known world, through Rome, into Persia, and kind of on and on out until we are sitting here today, a mostly Gentile group of people worshiping him. Um, you know, we could dig in on this, but it's just worth saying like, God redefines insiders and outsiders for us, that he takes human categories of race and class and religious background and nationality, and he breaks them down to make a new humanity of people who are joined to him in Christ. Um, again, that was a freebie. We're not digging in on that today. But um, so, so they have Micah's prophecy. They can kind of solve the mystery and see that a king has been born, but he is not just any king. That's maybe what you could have picked up from that verse. Um, but Micah goes on to say this, and he, this king, shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So this isn't just any king, like the next king of the Jews. This is a king who bears the strength of the Lord and the majesty, the glory of the God of the universe. And his fame and his power and the peace he brings don't just come to Judea, but they stretch out to the ends of the earth, into Persia and beyond. And so this is a universal king that has been born under this star, under this sign. And so that's the mystery that's revealed here. That's what we finally see when we put the pieces together of God's king is not just a regional local guy. He's the king of the entire universe, bearing the power and the authority, the glory of God himself. The gospel of John tells this about Jesus. It says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So the physical light that the, uh, the Magi saw uh, pointed to the spiritual light of God's glory that is shining now in the darkness. Just like God sent a light into a dark world and let you know, these spiritually dark pagans see it and come and worship, um, he shines light now, a spiritual light that gives light to all of us who are in spiritual darkness and draws us to worship him too. And the prophecy fulfilled points to the fact that God's word, which then uh, was what's now our Old Testament and now includes the Old Testament and the New Testament, is ratified by that same cosmic power. The same God who could put a new light in the sky spoke through prophets hundreds of years before Jesus was born to prepare the way for his coming. And so his word is backed by that same character and is worthy of that same admiration and respect. And it points us to his king. And so how the story could end, maybe we'd say how it should end, would be something like this. It would be Herod sets his crown aside because the true king of the Jews has been born. The religious leaders call a festival because the Messiah has finally arrived. God's chosen universal king is here. And then all of Jerusalem makes the the six-mile walk to Bethlehem. That's all it was, six miles. You could have breakfast in Bethlehem and be there by lunch, or breakfast in Jerusalem and be there by lunchtime. Um, They make that whole trek to go and gather around and worship this new king that's been born. And they celebrate, and his word begins to spread from there on into the rest of the world. But sadly, as we see, that's not what happens. We see three very different reactions to this news of God's king being born. And the first response we're going to look at is King Herod's. So let's read verses 7 and 8. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. You can hear Herod's snakiness kind of even in translation. You know, he secretly gathers the magi and he asks them kind of on the sly, when did this appear? You know, he kind of gathers intel about what's happened. And then he says, when you found and worshiped him, come back and tell me. I want to worship him too. This is your moment. You go, but come back and let me know what you find. And we see his true response in the verses that follow our passage. See, In verse 16, which is a little bit later, It says that after the wise men are warned by God not to go back to Herod, so they go back a different way, they kind of disappear from Herod's radar, he flies into a rage, and it says that he sends soldiers to have every male child aged two and under killed in the region around Bethlehem. So, Because, see, in his mind, he's the king of the Jews. Herod's the king of the Jews. And uh, we have historical records that show he was a monster, that if you saw him in a movie, you'd be like, that's not realistic. So he has his wife and multiple children of his killed because he thinks they're threats to his power. He has a group of like locally famous people murdered when he dies so that there will be lamenting in the city when he dies because otherwise people would have been going ding dong, the witch is dead. Um, So this is the kind of person that Herod is. And so a handful of babies in kind of podunk Bethlehem is nothing to him. And so he responds to the news that there's a king who's a threat to his power by flying into this murderous rage. He does violence to try to end it. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this response because thankfully, you know, in our part of the world, this is very uncommon. 
But kind of as we've seen, as we heard about our missions partners and kind of saw this week's going on in India right now, there are places in the world where if you begin worshiping God's King Jesus and you step away from the worship of, you know, your people, your people's gods, your people's culture, your people's government, that you become a threat that has to be shut down or eradicated. And so there are parts of the world where this is the normal response to someone coming to follow King Jesus. People respond to this epiphany in the same way. And so this should drive us to pray for our brothers and sisters who are in persecuted places, you know, particularly India, the Middle East, and China. But it's also worth hearing this warning from the Gospel of John. John warns this, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. See, it's possible even for someone who doesn't do actual violence to Christians or to Christianity to have something that they love so much, a belief, a relationship, an appetite, or a habit that when God's light shines on it and exposes it for what it is, we would rather have the darkness instead. And so we try to shut out the light by saying, don't talk to me about that. Or we flee and run away so we can stay in the dark with this thing that we would rather have than God's glory. And so that's why we as a church, when we're in community, we practice confession with one another, not just on Sundays, but also kind of in smaller groups and homes. Because we know that we have darkness inside us still, and we need God's light to shine into that darkness so we can be sure that we're not holding on to something that we would rather have than God's glory. That's a similar response to what Herod does. Before we get to the Magi's reaction, um, there's actually a second response that's so subtle we only see it because of a curious absence. See, all of Jerusalem saw the Magi come. And at the very least, the chief priests and the scribes, so the kind of the public religious leaders, kind of saw the mystery all put together. Everyone probably heard it uh, of kind of what everyone was saying. And so the people knew that you know, there's, there's good odds, at least, that God's king has been born a six-mile walk away. But the Magi are the only people we have record of who go to Jerusalem. For whatever reason, chief priests, scribes, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they just don't go. They, they can't be bothered to make the couple-hour walk to see if this news is real. And they just disappear from the story. We don't know why this is. Um, But it's just as sad for these people's sake as Herod's response. Though maybe they didn't go because they were afraid of Herod. Maybe they just didn't think that God could possibly have spoken through, you know, pagans like those magi. But they didn't even care enough to check it out. And they end up in the same place as Herod. They stay in the darkness. The danger here is that at some point in our lives, we just lose interest in Christianity. The Apostle Paul wrote uh, these sad words in 2 Timothy. He wrote, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas had been with Paul. He'd been with the apostles, one of the people who was living on mission for God's kingdom. But something happened that made him decide he loved the present world more, and he just kind of left. He just sort of spiritually fell asleep. Where we are uh, in the West right now, this is the bigger danger for us. We can get the idea that maybe a little Christianity is good for some people if it works for them. You know, it makes me feel better about myself, and so I'll kind of have that be part of my life. 
but it's not worth upending my life for. I'm not one of those crazy Christians who believes everything or does all this stuff. Um, we have so many things that make us comfortable that we can just kind of sleepwalk through life without ever really thinking about deep things or you know, asking the question, is there really a God who's made everything and who has a claim on my worship because he made me and because he is the most glorious being in the universe? It's easier than it's ever been to just fall asleep like that. But Jesus warns us that that ends up in the same place as someone who violently hates the light. It ends up in the dark. So we see these two sad responses. But thankfully, there's a third of people who understand the gift for what it is. We're going to end with their story. So let's pick up in verse 9. After listening to the king, the magi went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So the Magi see the light again, and somehow it guides them to the house where Jesus is living with his family. Look at verses 10 and 11. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This is a way that Greek and Hebrew literature would try to uh, convey a really intense emotion as they just sort of pile up the words. So they rejoice. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy when they see this new king. And they, uh, they're ecstatic. And they go into the house and they meet him. And, you know, these guys who, even though they weren't kings, they were venerable men and they were rich men. You know, they, they gave rich gifts. They fall down and worship a baby who's somewhere around a year old, which is almost like a silly thing to imagine if you build the picture in your mind. But they have rejoicing and worship and they bring him tribute of these gifts to honor him for who he is and what they have seen him and known him to be. So these responses, their responses of joy, of worship, and of giving, of generosity, these are the right responses who have seen the epiphany of God's king for what it is. Christians should be people of joy because the universally glorious God has chosen to live among us as one of us that god the son the second person of the trinity became a human baby he was willing to be born a human while he also stayed god so that he could be with us and so that he could save humanity from our own sin that was just an absolute overflow of his grace he didn't have to do any of that but he chose to live among us in that way and now that he's ascended to heaven, one day in the new creation, when he comes back and reunites heaven and earth, we will dwell with him and live with him for eternity in his presence because of this action, what we saw here, what the work he began in the incarnation. And so that doesn't mean that we don't have pain or sorrow. We do. We absolutely do in this life. But a Christian's bedrock, our foundation, should be joy and gratitude that God has chosen to live in and among us and give us the hope of eternal life with him. Worship is also a right response because this king carries the universal glory of God himself. Jesus wasn't just a human king. Like we've seen, he had the power and the majesty of God. 
the Gospel of John, which had the line about his life being the light of men, starts by saying this. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This human baby was also God the Word, God the Son in flesh. And so our life is one of worship because he's not just one of us. He's also someone who's completely above us, representing the God of the universe, because he is the God of the universe. And so we give him worship by ordering our entire lives around his glory, so we can point to that. And it means giving, too, which is a sign of worship. Giving is a sign that my whole life, including my stuff, but not just my stuff, also my time and everything else, my health, it belongs to God instead of to me. When we see the generosity of God the Father being willing to give up his own son for our sake, when we see the generosity of God the Son being willing to be born into such a humble life and such a humble course, even when we see the generosity of God the Holy Spirit who comes and lives in our hearts among us right now, sinners though we are, when we see that generosity and we see it truly, then we too become generous just like he is generous. We adopt his character. And like Paul shared with the, just the generosity that y'all showed at the missions offering, that is a, just a sign of understanding God's grace, of being willing to give to people that I will, may never see face-to-face in this life because they need help and God's kingdom needs it. So we're really thankful for that. Our prayer as a church is that everyone here would see the light of God's generous glory and be so captivated by it that we would spread that light into a world that needs it. Our world is becoming more anxious, more bitter, more polarized and frustrated. Um, There is a deep need, and there are people waking up to that need who weren't awake two years before. There is a deep need for the light of God's glory to go forward. And so we pray that our world, through our lives and our testimonies, through the work of Christians all over the place, and ultimately through the power of the Holy Spirit, would be filled with the joy, worship, and generosity that mark people who have seen God's grace. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this epiphany that we got to study today. We thank you that you put a new light in the heavens to show that your light had come into the world. We thank you that you confirmed the truth of your word showing that it is trustworthy because you are trustworthy. And we thank you that you use those things to point the way to the birth of your son, King Jesus, on our behalf. So I pray that we could see that for what it is, and I pray that we could respond with the joy and the worship and the glad generosity that are part of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. y'all please uh, stand for the closing song.